Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Hal Dalmay. Hal is a professor at the University of Maryland and a senior principal researcher with Microsoft Research. Hal, welcome to the Twimble AI Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Uh, I am super excited as well. Um, we typically start these conversations with uh, a bit of background. What set you off on the path of exploring language and machine learning and fairness and bias and ethics and all these cool things that we're going to be talking about for the next uh, few minutes? Yeah, I mean, I guess I, uh, I've kind of always been interested both in language and then also in sort of like math, computer science stuff. Um, and it was really only in like my last year in college that I even discovered that these two things could go together. Like I was majoring in math. Um, I had originally started minoring in creative writing, but it was really hard to get uh, get into the classes if you weren't actually a major. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so then like my last year of college, I was talking to one of my friends and he's he also was interested in math and computer science and language. And he's like, hey, have you heard of natural language processing? And I was like, <laughs> what is that? Um, and I was actually at Carnegie Mellon at the time. Uh, I mean, this was a long time ago, like way before you know, NLP was kind of a known thing and they have a really big group um, and they did it at the time. And so I got involved and I basically in like six months transitioned from like planning to apply to grad school in like pure math to applying to grad school in like linguistics and computer science programs. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say planning to apply for, you know, fine arts programs. To, no, okay. Not that, that would be quite a swing in six months. Yeah. So, yeah. So then I went to grad school, started doing NLP and really didn't do anything in, you know, the bias fairness space until, you know, the past three or four years. But I think one of the things that I guess there's sort of two reasons. So one is, you know, it's sort of like obviously super important in the world. And as NLP techniques and systems start having more impact, like I think it's important to consider like how that impact is actually affecting people. Um, but then the other is that I think that, you know, like I said, like I've always been interested in language and I think a lot of times, a lot of NLP work can end up a little bit like distant from the language itself. Like I really like the machine learning side too. Um, and like the mathy side and things like that. But I think often the, like the actual language gets lost. It's like, you know, okay, let X be a sentence. And then you sort of proceed from there. And I think for me, like a lot of what makes, you know, sort of this like bias in NLP space really exciting is that it's like another way to like start thinking again really deeply about like what does language mean? How is it used? Like how is it used in society and and things like that? So I see it for me as like kind of a way of like re-steering back toward my language interests rather than sort of just focusing on the more mathy side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had a great recent conversation with Emily Bender on just that topic. Have linguists been, uh, you know, unfortunately absent from, you know, NLP research uh, and, and the like. My sense is that is your background uh, kind of traditional linguistics or you came up much more on the computational machine learning side? Yeah, I came up much more on the computational machine learning side. Like I took a couple linguistics classes as an undergrad and a couple as a grad student. Um, and then basically like four years, three or four years ago, when I first started getting into this, I basically bought like a giant stack of sociolinguistics books and just like read through all of them, <laughs> um, which was rough going at the start because it's always hard imagine. to like read stuff outside of your area. But um, yeah, so I definitely don't have anything like a formal linguistics training. Uh-huh. And you're also a program co-chair for this year's ICML conference. I can only imagine that at the time you signed up for this, you had no idea what you were getting into on multiple levels. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's an understatement. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, so I'm doing this with um, Artie Singh as my um, program co-chair. Um, and, you know, at the beginning of the process, when we both agreed 
we had this like big brainstorming document. It's like, oh, here's like all the stuff we want to try like tweaking and experiments we want to do mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And then, you know, and so there's a lot of stuff that we've done intentionally. Yeah. <laughs> there's also a lot of stuff that happened um, right. and has required uh, adaptation. But, you know, I mean, it's been a lot of work, but it's uh, it's also been like pretty rewarding and interesting and, you know, working with all the committee members has been great. So when does that effort start? Does it start when the previous conference ends or before that or it? Basically, I can't remember exactly when I signed on. I mean, it's it starts reasonably soon after the previous conference ends. I think like the last one was over like end of July last year, and I think I got asked probably in August or September okay. or something. So it's it's basically a year. Okay. Actually, no, that's is that true? I think that's true. <laughs> and and uh, for those who well, whenever you hear this, it'll be after today. <laughs> We are speaking uh, immediately before the conference starts. So uh, congratulations on heroic organization that you're doing something like this, you know, a conversation like this before the the, the big show. Yeah, sometimes you need breaks. <laughs> awesome. So um, it is a bunch of stuff that I'm curious about uh, about the conference. Maybe we'll talk about that at some point, but I, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the work that you've been doing around uh, language and, and machine learning and, and fairness and bias. And um, you kind of mentioned that a good part of it comes from, you know, this belief around the importance of language and kind of all that it, you know, means for us. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's lots of stuff that makes language really interesting. Um, I mean, you know, I think it's generally considered that it kind of, you know, it's part of what sets humans apart. It's uh, it's arguably sort of a major way that, you know, we've been able to advance so far as a species because we don't have to like relearn everything immediately. Like when we're born, like we can actually you know, read and be told things and like learn things that came before, you know, it's generally the primary way that we communicate, although there's certainly lots of non-linguistic communication that goes on too. And, you know, there, there's sort of like two high level things I'm interested in. So one is like, you know, how do you use language to like, as a way of interacting with the world? So like, do you, you know, if I have like a, uh, smart assistant or a robot or something like that and i want to communicate with it like language is certainly a very natural way to do this for um most of the world's population so that's sort of like you know how do i use language to like operate devices um and then on the other side which is sort of like the bias fairness side i think it's generally considered that like in sociolinguistics land that language serves kind of two roles um, in society. So one is it's a way by which we construct our own social identities. Um, so, you know, there's sort of like contextualized things like, you know, if I'm sending an email to my department chair versus, you know, a grad student I work with, like the language that I use in those is going to be different because of like the respective roles that we have. But then, you know, more broadly, like, uh, you know, I had this experience like 17 years ago, I was an intern um, at Microsoft actually over the summer and I was giving a talk. I was like a second year grad student at the time. And um, one of the people in the audience who was like a relatively senior guy raised his hand like 10 minutes in. He's like, Hal, did you grow up in Los Angeles? And I was like, yes. <laughs> um, and then he proceeded to explain that he had heard this story on NPR that morning about like the LA dialect and LA accent. And he was like, he thought he was identifying it and he wanted to check that he had identified it properly. Um, and so I guess he had, but that also made me incredibly self-conscious <laughs> for like, the rest of the talk about like how I was speaking. But like in general, like whether it's conscious or subconscious, like the way that we speak, this is often called like how we do language. So hmm. the way we do language is uh, as much a part of what we're saying as like the actual content itself. So, so there's this whole sort of like constructing identity side of language. 
Um, and then the other side is, you know, like I was saying, you know, we learn things from history, you know, not all of those things we might think of as like normatively good. So we also learn like stereotypes um, and I don't know, like sort of like, I don't know, I can't think of another and, but yeah, so, so we, we, we learn like a lot of like group membership and stereotype and things like that through language. Um, and so like a lot of the stuff that you see in sort of the bias and NLP space is kind of trying to tease apart like how much of those stereotypes are being like picked up by language systems, whether they're gender stereotypes or racial stereotypes um, or whatever. And I think one of the things that makes language really interesting here is that like because it serves these dual roles, it means that I think it like significantly complicates like what you might want to do to mitigate harms that result from an NLP system because you know maybe you want to say like okay I don't want my system to contain these like gender or racial stereotypes but then you run the risk in trying to like mitigate those you run the risk of like minimizing the ability of users of your system to like express their own identity because that's also embedded in language. And so like trying to figure out like, how do you build systems that like let people talk how they want to talk um, as part of how they do language, but then also, um, you know, minimize the harms that arise because of, um, you know, uh, whatever societal stereotypes these systems have picked up. I think that's like a really interesting like divide to walk and um, it makes everything really complicated. And so that's why I like it. <laughs> uh, it, it does make a lot of things complicated. I'm thinking of, uh, oh, well, there's, you know, there's, as you know, there's been a lot of discussion in this area recently um, on Twitter and, and in other places. And I'm thinking of a tweet uh, I think Robert Ness was um, just commenting about, you know, how it was in the context of the Jan LeCun and um, trying to remember the name of the the uh, upsampling algorithm conversation that right yeah a couple of weeks ago Pulse I think um, in any case he was talking about uh, Robert was referencing the idea that. You know, it's hard enough for him as an individual to try to make, you know, assessments ar around, uh, you know, race and identity and these things to let alone, you know, expect a computer system, natural language processing in this case or computer vision in that case to, you know, try to be able to do that based on today's technology. You know, he was talking about it in the context of, you know, how many labels would you have to how many you know images would you have to label and you know how would you you know train folks to label those images even what is ground truth when we're talking about yeah. you know identity and you know race and and things like that um is that is that problem easier or more difficult in nlp <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don't know that it's easier i i think it's like somewhat different um you know i, I think that you know, if we let's take like race as an example, right? So if we think about something like various Englishes that are spoken in the United States, there's several uh, that would be categorized as, uh, for instance, like let's say like Chicano Englishes or African American English, um, or you know what's sometimes called mainstream U.S. English. I've also heard it called hegemonic English, <laughs> um, but uh, you know, and these things are closely related with like how like us society constructs race but they're not the same thing um you know there are african americans in the united states who don't speak african american english um there are white people in the united states who do and so i think that like first we have to like be kind of careful about like what categories we're talking about and like what they mean um and, you know, certainly avoiding making assumptions <laughs> about like how people do language as a result of like how we've uh, like categorized them. But I, I think like getting back to the, the point, I, I think the, 
the challenge that I see at least is like, I want systems that sort of work for whomever, like kind of regardless of how they want to do language. So, um, you know, one of the, th sorry, I don't know if you can hear the siren in the background. <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, like a handful of people have studied, so I'm thinking of like work by Brandeis Marshall. So she's looked at, um, for instance, the degree to which systems that don't work well on African-American English on Twitter essentially mean that like voices are not counted um, because they're not identified as, you know, even speaking English uh, or other sorts of harms that come up. So, you know, if you have, if you're running some word processing system and so this, uh, and, and you, I don't know, what's a good example? Like if, if, even in like a, um, uh, so I guess an example that Courtney Napoleon at Grammarly gave me was that, you know, if someone makes a typo and says something like IR space husband or something, and it wants to spell correct IR, like, do you spell correct to her, which would probably be the most common in data due to like heteronormativity? Um, or do you provide alternative spell corrections for that? And so like all of these things I think are about like, you know, when we're designing systems and, you know, they're being trained on, say, all the data you find on the Internet or something like all that data comes with, you know, sort of a bunch of social baggage. And some of that is useful, um, but some of that serves to, like, either erase people and make them unseen or serves to make the systems just not work well for them um, or make suggestions uh, like, you know, sort of the classic example of like auto replies that, you know, if, if someone says, you know, I saw a doctor yesterday, the auto reply is something like, what did he say? Mm -hmm. um, and so all these things that sort of like reinforce um, social hierarchies that already exist in the world. Um, I think that's sort of the, the interesting question. Now, how you go about it, I think this is super hard. And like, you know, this question of like, how much data do you need? Um, I, I guess, like my feeling on that is I don't know that like more data is always the right answer. And, you know, in some cases, I think we need to find other ways for domain experts to get their knowledge into machine learning systems. Like, I think a lot of this democratization of machine learning where it's like, okay, I have this black box and you know there's like the machine learning experts on one side and they're doing all the like development and then there's the domain experts on the other side and like all they're allowed to do is provide labeled data like i think this is like an incredibly reductive view of like what machine learning can do um and i think it's something that's like much beyond fairness like you know when i was even in grad school forever ago at this point you know i was in a natural language processing group and one of the things that we would kind of poke fun at the machine learning community for was that like, you know, to the machine learning community, like your API is someone gives you a matrix and you have to do something with that matrix. <laughs> and this was just like a really weird way to conceptualize problems, even as like an NLP person, which is like not that far from machine learning, mm -hmm. because we're always talking about like, okay, how do I develop new features? How do I collect new examples? How do I make better representations? Like all of these things that like, even just in a small way, break outside of this like matrix abstraction. And so I think that like in sort of like bias fairness space, this becomes like even more problematic because the sorts of like knowledge you need to integrate are really like these societal level, I don't know what the word is, like societal level knowledge. Um, and it's just not clear to me that trying to do that by having people label data is like an efficient way to do that at all. Have you, you know, what have you seen that's interesting that tries to, to get at this idea of incorporating the um, domain experts more deeply into the process? I mean, I think there's a lot of stuff. So, you know, back when I was in grad school, the, the technology du jour was Bayesian networks for everything rather than neural networks for everything. And, you know, I think a lot of the hope then was that, you know, domain experts could design these structured models that would then be useful. I think 
in some domains where things are sort of easy enough that you only have like 10 variables going on or 20 variables, you can do this. Um, but I don't think it really panned out very much for a lot of language problems. You know, I think in neural nets land, like sort of, you know, today's du jour, um, I think it's a lot harder because it's very difficult to understand these models. And so I think like the rather significant amount of work that's been going on in like transparency and explainability is like super important here. Cause like, if we don't understand what these models are doing, it's like not even clear how a domain expert would intervene. Um, but I think there's been also a bunch of work looking at like creative ways of trying to get knowledge in one form or another into systems. So one is, you know, there's been a handful of papers looking at, you know, okay, like, let's say that I have some like logical rules and I want to make sure that my neural net model, um, maybe not always obeys them, but like strongly prefers things that are consistent with these rules I write down. So like, how can I sort of compile these into neural net systems? I think there's been a bunch of work looking at, well, not a bunch, but there's been a bit of work looking at like, are there other forms of data that I can collect sort of alongside typical labels? So I think a lot of this goes back to like the mid 2000s with um, like annotator rationales. So have annotators like mark the pieces of text that are most relevant um, to the decision that they made. And then a variant of this uh, that's come up recently is instead of having them sort of highlight the relevant part, have them change a relevant part so that the the labeling decision would change. Um, so we tried this a couple of years ago in like an evaluation context. So this was, I think we conceptualized it at the time as sort of like human adversarial examples. So mm -hmm. we ran this shared task um, where people could submit systems uh, for two tasks, sentiment analysis and semantic role labeling. Then, so there, this was this uh, build it, break it task. So those were the builders. And then the breakers would come in and they'd take the outputs from the systems on test data or on development data. And then their job was to take a sentence from the development data and change it in a minimal way so that the label change, the true label changes, but perhaps the system prediction does not. And so then we score systems based on how hard it is to break them. And we score breakers based on how many systems they break. And one of the, I think there was like an interesting outcome of this, which was that we saw um, like a lot of the people who were breakers were linguists. We kind of build it as like, you know, hey, linguist, come show these NLP people like that their systems are really fragile and they don't <laughs> learn like even basic sort of syntactic properties. Uh, so that was, I don't know, three years ago or so. And then in the past couple of years, we've seen similar ideas applied to training data where um, people have elicited data that where they say, okay, label this and then change it minimally so that uh, the label would flip. And then uh, it's sort of been observed that by using that type of training data, you can learn something like just as good with far fewer examples. And so... I think that's still like largely in the space of having people label data, but I think it's like making this interface between, you know, the machine learning developers and the domain experts like a little bit broader. And I think like if we can continue pushing on that, I think there's like a huge amount of space both for like progress and also a lot of creativity. Like I think there's a lot of really interesting things you can think about when you start like separating, not separating, but when you start trying to make this connection more porous. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was curious about a, a paper, I think it was a survey paper that you did a while back on language technology is power. Can you share a little bit about that one? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't a while back. It was like just this week, actually, at ACL. Uh, was it really? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so it is top of mind. Yeah, so this was with um, Sulin Blodgett, uh, who was an intern at Microsoft last summer, uh, and then Sulin Barokas and Hannah Wallach. Um, so yeah, so what Sulin did uh, to start with was look at basically every paper we could find on quote unquote bias in NLP. And that was basically 150 papers over the past couple of years. And what we 
set out to do was try to understand what are the, like when people write papers on bias in NLP, like sort of what is motivating them? So like, what does the paper say? Like, this is the problem in the world that we're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. um, what their sort of like normative commitments are. So like they say it's a problem. Why do they say it's a problem? And then because most of these papers present some sort of new method that's either a mitigation strategy or a measurement strategy, you know, what is that thing actually measuring? And like, how much does it align with, uh, for instance, the harms that were in the motivation. Um, and so a lot of the initial work was sort of categorizing papers, um, coming up with a uh, taxonomy of different types of harms. So we largely followed the allocational representational harms perspective that like Kate Crawford and Sloan Brokus and colleagues have talked about before. We, we had to create a couple of new categories and there were some that didn't really apply. Uh, so the, the first effort was kind of a categorization effort. And then the second effort was really trying to take stock of like, you know, okay, so we found that like motivations were often super vague, like of the form stereotyping is bad. And then we often found that papers sort of took normative stances for granted. So something would be seen as bad, but it wouldn't really be explained why. Um, and actually in the poster session- What's an example of uh, um, the, the previous? Yeah, what's a good example of that? Um, so for instance, I, I'm making this up, so like, okay. don't ask me to point to something that says this in particular, but like, you know, something along the lines of, um, you know, word embeddings pick up associations between gender and stereotyped occupations associated with that gender. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so that may be true, um, but the decision that this is bad is like fundamentally like a values question. Mm. Um, and so like sort of what is like, what are the values that you're leaning on in order to like decide that this thing is bad? Mm -hmm. um, and one reason why I think that's important is because like a lot of these things are really tricky and like we need to debate them as a community. Um, but like until we make them really crisp, it's really hard to have a debate about like whether something's good or bad without saying why it's good or bad. Mm -hmm. um, and actually in the poster session earlier this week for this paper, um, Sharon Goldwater at Edinburgh brought up this question about, you know, what does this paper say about how to teach sort of ethics and NLP in classes? And um, one of the comments that Solon made that I thought was really nice was that and, right, and sorry, the context in which Sharon was asking this question is that she teaches in Edinburgh, she's American, many students in Edinburgh are international, we all come from like very different um, backgrounds and have different sets of values, so like how do we teach in that context? And um, one of the points that Solon made in response to this is that like if we made our normative commitments more explicit, it would actually make teaching easier too, because then a paper would explain like, okay, this is the problem. This is why we say it's a problem uh, and then go on. And then even if you're not from the cultural context in which it might be taken for granted that this thing is a problem, you can still at least understand why it's being couched as a problem. Mm -hmm. So what you're looking for here is the explanation as opposed to, you know, reference to some pre-existing ethical code that, you know, may have already established that it's a problem. Yeah. I mean, I think both uh, are good. So, you know, there's a huge literature outside of NLP on like how language and society works. This is like you know, linguistic anthropology, sociolinguistics, yeah. et cetera. Right. And then like, if you're looking at specific problems, like, like for instance, gender, you know, there's like, decades of gender studies literature out there right. um, specifically thinking of the example you gave with the the um you know predicting you know nlp predicting gender or we um you know throw this example around with the you know word to vec word embeddings like uh the professions and i, I think you're right that, you know as was the case in the paper the, i guess it was the hypothetical paper you were referring to we often throw this very example around as 
being, um, you know, so wrong that it doesn't need definition or doesn't need explanation as to, you know, why it's problematic. And I'm thinking if we want to be precise, do we all need to keep recreating that definition of why that's a problem or is there some, uh, something that we can refer to? Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, this is why references exist. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think we definitely don't need to like keep recreating it. Um, I think that, uh, like for instance, in this example, you know, I think the question that I would ask is like, you know, okay, so we've found that, you know, there's sort of these gender occupation stereotypes in word embeddings, like, you know, what harm does that create? Uh, for instance, a lot of, I think even the original paper gives this example of resume filtering um, or something like that. So um, this is a sort of commonly leaned upon example where uh, you could imagine a scenario in which word embeddings are used in some sort of resume filter. And then if you have, you know, I don't know if the word embeddings pick up correlations between names and gender, and then also pick up correlations between occupations and gender, then maybe it like uh, sorts people um, according to uh, whatever these stereotypes were in the, the language that it was trained on. So I think, right, so this would generally be considered like an allocational harm in the sense that there's like a resource, like a job or a job opportunity that's being denied someone on the basis of like what the system has picked up. And so I think it's fine to lean on that. Um, but then I, what would be, I think, really interesting to see, and I think there's like a lot of work to be done here, is like how can we actually go about measuring that and how can we build like mitigation strategies like for that like specific harm and so i think like this is sort of like the mismatch issue that i mentioned earlier so you know there's a lot of motivations along the lines of you know this resume filtering example um but uh these are all sort of in the context of this hypothetical resume filtering system that like we don't even know exists we don't know if this actually happens and so if we're thinking about like measuring whether we've been successful in mitigating these harms like we have to be able to sort of measure them in the first place Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, like on your sort of original question, like definitely we don't need to all reinvent the wheel every time. But I think as things have, and, and that, I think this is a, the gender-based stereotypes is a more clear case. I think there are less clear cases where it's, I think, much more up for debate whether these harms are like, or whether these, whether these biases that are proposed um, actually amount to some sort of harm or not in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the, the question that I'm curious about is to what degree there's a catalog or a survey of, you know, the kind of common biases and, and harms, you know, versus individual papers that have, you know, that are exploring specific harms. So, you know, the word to vec word embeddings thing that's been explored in a bunch of individual papers, you know, but is there like something analogous to the, the Wikipedia page of, you know, cognitive biases that just lists, you know, a thousand of them and the, the various, you know, harm arguments. Does the work that you referenced, um, with Hannah Wallach and, uh, was that Hannah and Solon that, yeah. And Sulin. Um, I don't know if something like that, I would love it if it existed. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, like, you know, I was saying like three or four years ago when I started doing all this stuff, you know, I read this giant pile of sociolinguistics books, right? And it would certainly have saved me a lot of time if, uh, um, if I could, you know, if, if this was sort of like more distilled somewhere. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the challenges is that I think it's really hard to think about these things abstractly, even in word embedding. Yeah. It's like, you know, no one goes to like word embedding.google.com and like asks for an embedding of a word. Like this is not like an end user technology. It's like embedded in, in other systems. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, the further a technology is from like the use case, the, like it is much, much harder to think about. So if you look at the work that's been done in sort of like bias and machine translation systems or speech recognition or dialogue or something like that, like these 
systems that are like much more user facing. I think it's a lot easier to think about, you know, you could, for instance, do like a value sensitive design type exercise and think about like, who are the stakeholders involved in the system? Um, you know, what happens uh, to each of them when different types of errors are made and so on. And it's just for these, like these more component tasks, um, whether it's like word embeddings or syntactic parsing or something like that, it becomes much harder to think about like as errors are made, like what sort of, what sort of problems does this cause? Because they'll inevitably be like downstream causes, down, sorry, downstream effects. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I think the answer is no. I think, I think to some degree it would be great, but I think it's also really tricky. So for instance, like we had this other ACL paper this year on trying to move toward like co-reference resolution that's more gender inclusive in particular for like binary and non-binary trans people. And, you know, like, I think like work in that area, for instance, I think needs to lean, you know, super heavily on queer studies and gender studies mm -hmm. um, and topics like this. And so I think, you know, as you pick these areas and uh, like both tasks and like populations you're thinking about and things yeah. like that, it's really hard to imagine anything other than like a full encyclopedia yeah. that's going to like have the answer to everything. I, I totally see where, you know, it's wishful thinking that another example that kind of comes to mind is like in, you know, writing, you've got, you know, like Chicago style or AP style. I'm envisioning something where, you know, someone who's writing a paper can refer to, you know, it's, you know, that this paper is, you know, should be evaluated in XYZ ethical frame. Mm. And, you know, that's the lens in which I'm, you know, conveying judgments about what's right and what's wrong and et cetera, et cetera. I, I think you see a little bit of this. So I think you see it kind of with connections to like political philosophy. So sometimes you'll see motivations and papers that say like, you know, we're going to take like a Rawlsian view of justice mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes this is a little bit more like sell than content, but like it often is content. And, you know, and like, I, I think a lot of people think like Rawls had interesting things to say. I think, you know, certainly uh, he's also been contested. And so, um, but like, at least by saying like, okay, this is like the framework that I'm using. It sort of lets other people say like, well, I either disagree with that or I agree with it. And like, I can evaluate, like you were saying, like I can evaluate the work in the context of like this right. framing. Right. Right. Um, so if you're, if you're not researching this, but you're actually trying to build systems, yeah. You know, how do you kind of wade through all of these issues? Yeah, that's really hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, I, I think there's, um, I mean, there's like been a lot of work recently trying to like, okay, so I'm going to like kind of put like a little bit, I, I'm going to think of this more in the context of like, you know, uh, building systems, not building academic systems, but building like real systems in the world. Right. right. Um, I mean, you know, so like there's been work trying to look at, you know, what do what do the people who build these systems need? So like Michael Veal had this nice paper in CHI 18, um, looking at the public sector. So systems that are developed, um, you know, for things like, uh, well, he was in the UK, so like hospitals um, or social services and things like that. And then we had basically a follow-up paper a year later, looking at this in the context of private companies. You know, I think one of the things that was consistent in both of those is that a lot of the work on like bias and fairness often comes down to sort of a single well-motivated individual on a development team. Mm. Um, so one of the people we interviewed referred to these people as like fairness vigilantes. Um, and they're often working overtime uh, to address issues like this. Um, they're often not compensated uh, for doing this extra work. Um, I mean, in many ways, it's kind of reminiscent of like diversity and inclusion work in like companies and universities as well. You know, I think at, at the, as like a bare minimum, you know, this has to be part of like assessment of tools and assessment of success and like promotion criteria and raised criteria, right? So I think there's like all these like social things in like how companies are run that 
kind of has to change so that it's not this like, you know, one poor individual is like burdened with doing all this work. It's interesting though that you the you point to a, a cultural solution, a company cultural solution, as opposed to uh, a process solution. So I think it's both. So I, I think there's the, the cultural aspect. Um, and I, you could certainly argue that maybe the process won't come about if the culture is not there to support it. Right. But. That's basically my concern. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so there's, there's been more sort of like technical work. So like uh, Michael Medio, who was a, an intern um, last summer working with Jen Wortman Vaughn and Hannah Wallach had this nice like checklist for fairness paper at Kai last year. Um, which was really sort of exploring this question of, you know, how can we, like once people are bought into this, either because they care themselves or because their boss tells them they care now, you know, how can they like more easily navigate this space? Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's also a lot of sharing of information that's needed. I think this is like really hard, but, you know, like for instance, machine translation and speech recognition are different tasks. Um, they're often developed by different groups within, if, if a company makes both, they're often developed by different groups, but they share a lot of similar issues in the sense that both are about writing down text as a function of some input. Um, and it's just like, is that input like something in another language or something um, in speech? And like finding ways to like share expertise about like what goes wrong, like the thing everyone is like super concerned about is uh, is like blind spots, right? So these things that you don't think to test for, and then you release your system, and then like 24 hours later, there's a New York Times article about right. how your system is terrible, and you know, and, and how are you supposed to know this ahead of time? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's a lot of process stuff. So I think it's a lot of things. So I think it's like cultural stuff. I think it's process stuff. And then I think it's like technological stuff. So the sort of fairness and machine learning community has, I think, really gravitated and made a lot of progress on these sort of parity constrained machine learning problems, right? It's like optimized classification accuracy subject to some maximum disparity between two predefined um, social subgroups. Um, so that's, I think, like by far the dominant paradigm that people have been thinking about. And we have pretty good tools for that, for problems that fit in that category at this point. Um, I think the thing that we found in this Kai paper last year with Ken Holstein was that like that is definitely not all that people need. Like people definitely need that. But, um, you know, like we were talking about before, a lot of this is about data. So, you know, how do you, you know, say that I've discovered that my system has this gap, like I can try to address it algorithmically, but like if I just don't have any data or I have like very little data from some, uh, from some subpopulation, like no amount of algorithmic finessing is going to help me. And so, mm-hmm. you know, this is where we need to start thinking about like, how do I grow that matrix, right? So like, how do I like select new rows? Like how do I elicit more data from like um, populations where I'm observing like large disparities? Yeah, so I think it's really these three things, like cultural process and then technical. And I think, you know, I'm a technical person, so it's easiest for me to think about the technical problems, but. You know, I think it's also the case that you can have the best technical thing in the world, but if no one uses it and no one's encouraged to use it, then eh. Mm -hmm. Yeah, ultimately, if the the change is happening on the part of these, you know, fairness, I don't know, vigilantes is the right word, but, you know, advocates or whatever. Yeah, advocates is probably better. then we need tools to enable the the advocates and and it, is it easy now you know is that tools you know here a bunch of links to papers go read them and you know that's what you have or i think there are in conferences what what are the best resources do you think for folks that you know hear this and say oh i want to be that in my company yeah so i mean on these problems of, you know, sort of like optimized classification performance with respect to some parity metric, I think, you know, sort of at least IBM, Google, and Microsoft all have toolkits at this point that will do these. I think, you know, they all have pros and cons, you know, with my Microsoft hat on, I'll be like, the Microsoft one's the best. (laughs) Um, But 
you know, but I think they, they certainly all have strengths and weaknesses, but, but they're kind of, I won't say all, but they're like largely focused on sort of this, like one very specific sub problem. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for other things like the technology hasn't matured that much yet. So, you know, like I've been thinking a lot about data collection uh, and th- in some ways this is a really natural machine learning problem. Like machine learning people have been studying active learning, which is basically automated data collection for like 50 years, probably at least. Uh, so there's a paper, I, I, I apologize, I can't remember the author's names, but there's a, there's a paper already on archive on this topic. Um, we've been doing some work on this topic, basically figuring out, you know, okay, I have some disparity, like I built a system, I observed some disparity in its performance. I have a giant pool of data that I could have labeled. Which data points should I label in order to close this parity gap as much as possible? Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that I actually really like about this conceptualization is that, you know, we very frequently hear about this um, like accuracy fairness trade off. And I think to some degree, like there's there's some truth to that in the sense that like if I'm solving an unconstrained optimization problem versus a constrained optimization problem, like the constrained optimization problem is not going to do it's going to do it at best as well as the unconstrained one. But, you know, sort of like caveat one is that, you know, accuracy with respect to like what test set. So if your test set is like super biased, then like who cares if I trade off accuracy on a super biased test set um, in order to get parity? But I think like I actually really prefer to think about this as a like accuracy versus effort trade-off. So um, like if we take for granted that some notion of fairness measured by parity or measured some other way is just a constraint in how we build systems, then the question is how much effort do I have to put in in order to get my accuracy up to a sufficient level like under that constraint? And so I... I I much prefer to think of this as like, how much work am I willing to do in order to get this accuracy when I demand that, you know, this thing is, you know, quote unquote fair in, in however I've technically defined that. Mm-hmm. Which is great because it puts the responsibility on you for deciding that you're not willing to put in the effort to right. <laughs> get the yeah. accuracy. Well, well, not on me, I hope. <laughs> Someone help. <laughs> yeah, I mean, data collection is, you know, it, it's, it's tough. It, it, it's important, right? Like, I mean, you know, you can go back to the, like the gender shades paper by Joy and Timnade and, you know, like that paper only was possible because they went and collected data. And, you know, I think we've seen a lot of papers basically following up on that work where it's basically like, oh, I collected another data set and this thing is terrible. And I collect another data set and this thing is terrible. And, you know, we had a paper like that at ACL, right? So I think that that's been like a really productive way of thinking about problems. I would like to think that there's a way to do this without having to go out and like collect a full test, right? This is an expensive process. And so like, what can we do to sort of like streamline this so that we can find issues um, like quickly? And I don't think, I mean, going back to your original tools question, you know, this like blind spots thing that comes up over and over again. I mean, there's very few even papers on this, not to mention like tools that exist. So, you know, people should work on that. (laughs) What was the paper that you were referring to uh, from ACL? This is like with uh, my PhD student, Trista Sal. So this is on, this is the gender inclusive co-reference paper. So Um, yeah, the observation there is, you know, most, so in co-reference resolution, I'm trying to determine like, you know, if I say like, you know, I had a meeting with Sam yesterday, he blah, blah, blah. I want to know that he refers to Sam, you know, the vast majority of data sets that have been collected for this are from Newswire, you know, like New York times and wall street journal. It was only like last year, I think that they, their style guidelines started allowing the use of third person singular, they, um, to refer to non-binary people. Um, I think otherwise they would just avoid, I'm not actually sure what they did, um, but they must've had some way of talking around this. And so like, if your data doesn't even contain like third person singular, they not to mention like neo pronouns like Z here, um, 
you know, how is your system going to learn to do anything like this? So, you know, our data collection exercise was basically like, okay, what are like naturally occurring sources where we will see uh, like gender neutral pronouns where we will, you know, unfortunately see things like dead naming and, and misgendering. And then, I mean, even how do we annotate those things is not entirely clear. And so we had like a handful of data sources that we annotated and then, you know, not surprisingly systems don't do very well because they've never seen um, language used this way in their training time. Mm -hmm. So did you, after collecting the data set, did you benchmark existing uh, systems? Yes, we ran like five, yeah, five systems. Um, They all performed like in terms of the main measure that we collected, they all performed essentially the same. Um, you say systems are these systems that are used out in the wild by companies or algorithms that were presented in a paper around some uh, academic task? Yeah, so certainly the latter. Whether they're used in companies, <laughs> I honestly don't know. There's been work, for instance, looking at you know how much does using coreference resolution help with like information retrieval systems like web search. And the idea there is like, you know, if I search for, like if I search for someone's name, I want to highly rank documents that mention that person a lot. Mm-hmm. But it shouldn't really matter whether the document mentions them by name or whether it mentions them pronominally or they, it mentions them as, you know, like the president or the professor or, or whatever. And I, I think there's kind of been mixed results. Like at the end of the day, you know, do major search engines use this? I have no idea. Right. Yeah. So whether they're used in real systems or not, I, I just don't know. Um, so it's, it's, you know, we were looking mostly at like academic systems. Mm-hmm. Cool. But yeah. They don't do super well. So like on, I don't want to use the word standard, but on previous data sets, um, they get uh, score, sort of these F scores in like the 60s. Um, on our data set, it's like in the 30s. You know, certainly not the errors that, right, this, this gap between 30 and 60, the errors are not uniformly distributed over people. Like they're um, much more peaky uh, for, for non-binary people or uh, people who are gender fluid and so on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's you know, clearly a ton of work to be done in this area. Are we generally heading in the right direction? I've had some conversations recently um, and there have been some papers published recently that try to say variations of kind of the, you know, the fairness community, you know, is or isn't going in the right direction or is, you know, has a huge blind spot in area X, Y, Z kind of what's your take on all that? It's hard to say, like, I think that, you know, I mean, you know, okay. So like my own bias is that, I think that like breaking outside of this sort of like parity constrained classification um, abstraction would be really good for the community. And I think we're seeing that, um, like I think it's happening, uh, not because that problem is unimportant, but like, I actually think we have pretty good solutions to that at this point. Um, and I think that like the space of problems is just so much bigger than that. You know, I, I know that people will possibly not possibly. I know that people will disagree with me on this, but like, <laughs> I really think it's hard to do work in this space without engaging and like thinking closely about like what role does this technology have in the world? You know, I think there's like, especially in computer science, I think we're often trained to think like very abstractly and, you know, like, you know, I build this thing and, you know, People can use it for good. People can use it for bad, blah, blah, blah. But like, I kind of feel like engineers to collect the right data to use this thing that I built. Yeah, exactly. And I I think at the end of the day, it's like we live in a world and like that world has properties (laughs) and like some of those properties are good. Some of those properties are bad. But I think that like it's. You know, if I build a technology that's like only useful in a world that doesn't exist, like that's like socially construct, like if I build something that's only useful in a world that's socially constructed, like fundamentally different from how ours is, at, at best that's neutral, right? But like at worst, that that's going to be bad. And so, you know, this is something that you know certainly I haven't thought about for my whole career, right? Like, 
really like I've only been thinking about these things for like three or four years, but I do see a little bit of a push in like some parts of the fairness community to try to maintain this like divide between like the technical work that happens and the world in which that work is happening. And I understand like that, that desire, but I think that like, for systems to, or, or for like the technology that we build to be like, to actually like support things like justice and equity and stuff like that. I, I think it's really hard to do this without like engaging in like how society is structured. Mm -hmm. And how well do you think we're doing on that? I mean, I'm in through like I'm I'm generally positive. I mean, I'm generally a positive person, but like yeah, yeah, and I I didn't really mean it to to make it so reductive, but I I guess more, you know, practically again, you know, if I if I'm kind of working in this space and I'm always curious around, you know, how folks kind of wrap their arms around the entire scope of. Um, this technology that we're all working in, like AI, you know, has huge potentials for good, huge potentials for bad. And, you know, how folks kind of parse that and it is always interesting to me, particularly for, for folks that take on the challenge of parsing it, as opposed to putting that in a box that, you know, I'm just doing what I do and that's somebody else's issue. Mm -hmm. How have you kind of grappled with that or come to terms with that or assess that or, you know, what do you see other folks doing? I mean, I think you see a broad range. I mean, I, I think the thing that makes me enthusiastic is, you know, you see things like the FACT conference and um, AI ethics and society, and like these have been growing. There's now, you know, sort of like fairness related workshops at essentially every AI conference that happens. So I think there's clearly like momentum here. So I remember like a bunch of years ago when like, this is going to seem like a tangent, but it's actually relevant. <laughs> like I remember a bunch of years ago when like people were like kind of starting to think more seriously about like image captioning. And so, you know, I'm thinking of like the work by like Tamara Berg um, back in like the early 2010s, something like that, maybe late 2000s. You know, I think we as a community and like I did a little bit of work in this space, like we were kind of in exploration mode, like we didn't really know what was possible. And, you know, we hadn't quite figured out, like, how do I evaluate captions? Like, you know, what makes a caption good? What makes a caption bad? And, you know, over time, as the field matured, it became more and more important to, like, tease these things out. Um, and so I think you see a bit of this happening in sort of, at least in the fairness and NLP space these days, where, like, I think for a while, we kind of weren't really sure what we were doing and what was possible and like what wasn't possible. And like, as we're getting a better sense of the space, like I think things are starting to get like more concrete, uh, like more grounded in like the real world. I think the challenge with this analogy is that like getting a caption wrong and like getting fairness wrong are like very different things. And so I think that's like one of the reasons why I think it's like, I mean, I don't wanna sound like a broken record, but like why it's like super important to like lean on all the work from, uh, you know, sociolinguistics and linguistic anthropology in particular, like black feminist scholarship in this space, because like there's been so much written about this and like if we like I, I have this kind of metaphor like when the nlp community started doing like syntactic parsing it's not like a bunch of people like huddled in a room who didn't know anything about syntax and like tried to invent syntax like <laughs> we went and we read what linguists had to say about syntax and like you know we built i mean not we i wasn't involved in this of course but like <laughs> you know the people who did this like built you know like a 120 page annotation guideline for how to annotate syntactic trees on sentences. And we spent, you know, a million dollars annotating the pen tree bank and, and, you know, an annotation has continued like this. And so I think in various parts of NLP, there's been like really tight connections between, you know, I don't know, maybe not quite what like Emily would like, but um, there has been tight connections between how linguists conceptualize problems and how we go about annotating them and building systems. And I think like what we really need to see more of 
I mean, not to say that it doesn't exist, but I think we could do a lot more in sort of the fairness for NLP space is do a similar thing. Like, you know, it, it would be kind of absurd to the community to think about doing parsing without looking at what syntacticians have thought about. Mm -hmm. Like, why should we be thinking about doing like gender and NLP without looking at what gender studies people or sociolinguistic, the sociolinguists have, have talked about. So, you know, I, I think people are digging more into this literature. It's kind of dense sometimes, so it can be time consuming, but like, I think it's like super worth it. Hmm. Awesome. Well, Hal, thanks so much for, uh, sharing all that with us, taking a few minutes out of your clearly busy schedule about to launch a major research conference uh this weekend a couple days sunday yeah sunday. <laughs> is it sunday or monday for this one um you know you'd think i would know sunday is the expo got it um, monday is tutorials and then that's also when we give out awards and stuff like that and then the main conference program starts tuesday uh -huh. awesome well thanks for taking a few minutes out of your busy pre-conference schedule to share a bit with us um it was wonderful thank you yeah thanks for having me all right everyone that's our show for today to learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview visit twimmelai.com of course if you like what you hear on the podcast please subscribe rate and review the show on your favorite podcatcher thanks so much for listening and catch you next time